Our study Echoes from Exodus Part 2 is following up uh, to the introduction that we had last week, and then we're going to take a look tonight at chapters 1 and 2, and we're going to highlight a few things out of uh, those two chapters. So if you have a Bible, uh, that's where we will get to after a couple of slides here. So last week, we didn't get to uh, a couple of slides, uh, but I want to show them tonight. It will give us a little bit of orientation, but it's on last week's handout. So um, when we think about um, our introduction to our study tonight, one of the subjects that came up last week was the authorship of the book of Exodus. And that's not a real easy answer. Uh, we talked a little bit about the fact that parts of it probably came from oral tradition and parts of it probably came through Moses. Some of it was probably recapped through some traditions. And uh, many of the Old Testament books have a pattern in it. The technical term for it is called the JEPD theory. Uh, but what it basically means is there's kind of four influences we find in the Old Testament, viewpoints from the priests, viewpoints from the holiness code, which is basically the law, and then the uh, use of the name of God, Yahweh, and Elohim. So um, as we were talking last week a little bit about the authorship of Exodus, we um, were talking about how the uh, kind of final version of Exodus probably is not completed until a little bit after uh, the exile is done. So one of the things that we also talked about last week is the importance of the Exodus imagery. And when we debate about um, authorship or even historicity to some extent of some of the things that we find in Exodus, we get sidetracked. And I think uh, the more important thing is to understand what that meant to a group of people that would receive this document. Uh, if there was any way to summarize what's happening in Exodus, it's not really a history book as much as it is a theological treatise that becomes the basis for uh, Judaism. And so many of the fundamental beliefs and practices that are still in, um, are still observed today are uh, things that are rooted in the book of Exodus. And Exodus is used primarily as a way to understand how they understood God and his activity in the world. And the main theme that comes through the book is God's liberating power to help people who are oppressed and marginalized. So, um, Kay, welcome. Glad that you were able to join us. Uh, Kay emailed me uh, after last week's study, and I said, uh, told her that we'd come back to um, uh, that tonight. And um, why don't you summarize a little bit, uh, Kay, uh, what you were uh, email, emailing me about and kind of giving us your perspective on that. Oh, it just struck me when, um, I forget who you had speaking there on the video, but um, he's like, well, Moses Moses is actually an Egyptian name. And I was, I was like, yeah, he was found in a basket. Okay. Right? <laughs> and so I think he did have a Hebrew name, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then I was thinking more of, I thought that there was someone that, that had in history recorded that Exodus, an Egyptian priest. And, and I just quickly looked it up. There, it was in a Harvard article. Hmm. And so that's why I was saying, no, there is actually other evidence for, you know, that time period. And then there and slavery and their exodus so and then and, i also oh go ahead yeah and, and um i think the point that um pete ends was the individual that was on the video last oh, week mm -hmm. 
Um, I think the point that he was making is if there's a couple of million people that left Egypt, that it didn't have the press that you would normally associate with something of that magnitude. So I think that was kind of his main point. Uh, You would expect more uh, information on that to be found in in other uh, people groups. Um, and, but, um, uh, that's an interesting, um, I, um, I have never read what you have had found, uh, mm-hmm. about the Egyptian priests. So that's, that's a great, uh, great insight. And, uh, I appreciate your finding that. Yeah, sure. I was, I always like to know about other writings that support sure. it. Helps me. Yeah. Yeah. Very so. good. Okay. Anything else that you wanted to talk about? Uh, not just Kay, but anybody before we move ahead. Okay, so one of the things I showed you last week, just by way of a reminder, is that the Exodus motif uh, finds its way in the scriptures in a variety of different ways uh, through direct quotes, subtle citations. Uh, different allusions and echoes or reminiscing of it. So when you uh, go into um, the Bible, you're going to run across, let me go, I'll come back to the map in a second. If you have a Bible, go go to, and I'm not going to turn to all of these here, go to Psalm 77, just for a second, okay? Psalm 77. You have a lot of these type of uh, mentions of Exodus uh, in the rest of the Bible, and it's echoed throughout uh, both the Old and the New Testament. So if you come down to verse 11 of chapter 77 of the Psalter, uh, you'll notice it's talking about and remembering this period of time. It says here, beginning in verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So it's definitely touching upon some elements of Genesis, but uh, the focus of it is on the Exodus and uh, the leaders that led this Exodus, uh, you can see in the last verse, uh, Moses and Aaron. You have a lot of references like that, and because of that, uh, Yahweh is worthy of worship. That's the way the Psalter will usually use these references to the Exodus, that he is the mighty God, he is the worthy God. So, uh, you know, you can look up uh, Psalm 78, which is the next one. You'll see some references there. Psalm 107, Psalm 114. There's a lot of those. But the main thing that it's trying to emphasize is there's no other God like the God of the Israelites. And he alone is worthy of worship because he was the one that rescued Israel from Egypt. Another big idea is um, when God saves, he also recreates that he starts over. And uh, this will echo some of the book of Genesis as well, when he brings order out of chaos And then he starts over again after the flood. And then through the Exodus, Israel becomes a new creation. And all of this is to subdue evil and to subdue chaos. Now, there's a big theme in the book of Exodus that this God, Yahweh, that shows himself to Moses is the God of the mountain. 
and we'll see that uh, Moses will make his way to Mount Sinai, where he receives the commandments that will govern the Israelite community. And this is the law, uh, that giving of the law is kind of a key moment in their history. It's what helps form them, and it's what helps guide them. However, they tend to be rebels against what God has done for them, and especially against Moses and his leadership. Moses had a hard time. We often call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Um, Moses also had a lot of tears because his people pushed back against him quite often. So those are kind of the big ideas. But if you look at the map here, um, you'll see that basically uh, this book covers uh, the area of Egypt and alongside the Mediterranean Sea. As you go up alongside the sea, you enter into the land of Canaan, and that will eventually be the promised land that they uh, arrive and set up Jerusalem as their capital. What's fascinating, though, here is scholars try to figure out where Mount Sinai is, and most scholars think that it's right here down in this little valley uh, between Midian and Egypt. And uh, you can see the Red Sea uh, goes pretty far north, but it also goes down all the way to where Mount Sinai is. Um, I have never had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land, um, but I do know that some tours will take their, um, their tour group to Mount Sinai and uh, show that area that they believe Moses received the law. So if you look at Exodus, it's really easy to break down. Part one, Israel's in Egypt. Part two, they're at Mount Sinai. So geographically, it's not a hard book at all. When we look at the first part, there's a prelude in chapters one through six. We're going to take a look at chapters one and two in a moment. Then the plagues and then the departure. And then after they get to Mount Sinai, they will stay there and receive, uh, they are, will be given the law and also the instructions to build the tabernacle. So look at this, chapters 25 through 40 is like a set of blueprints for the building of the tabernacle. All of the materials, what it's to look like, uh, who's allowed to enter the tabernacle, who's allowed to offer up sacrifices, uh, and how that particular place of worship is a mobile unit that will follow them through the wilderness as they set it up and tear it down as they move along. And uh, so that's basically the book of Exodus. When you look at it through a simplified kind of sky view looking down on it, once you get into the text, though, there's a lot of fascinating things, and that's what I want to do. If you're ready to get into chapters one and two, the way we're going to get into that is uh, take a look at the uh, Bible Project video, which is only five minutes, that will touch upon the book of Exodus. Let's uh, watch that together. I'll get it. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now, right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together, and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity, he brutally enslaves them, and he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. 
here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, Who, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great but the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. Hi, this is Tim. And this is John. We think one of the best ways to understand the Bible is to look at the design and message of each individual book and how it fits into the overall storyline of the whole Bible. We also make videos that take one theme and trace it through the entire storyline of the Bible from beginning to end. Hey, we want you to meet some of the artists who are working on these videos. We're a nonprofit and we'd love your help. We're always making a new video. You could go to jointhebibleproject.com and give a few bucks or become a monthly member and help us finish the entire project. You can download high resolution versions of these videos or other study guides that go with them all for free at jointhebibleproject.com. Okay. So I thought that gave a good overview uh, of the book and the importance of chapter 19 and 20, where he finally gets to Mount Sinai. But before we get there, 
what we want to do is take a look at the first couple of chapters, some fascinating things uh, as we get started in the book. As was mentioned in the video, the book is looking back to the story of Joseph. And you'll remember that a famine took Joseph's family to Egypt so they could survive. Joseph uh, has been elevated to a place um, uh, a right-hand man of uh, Pharaoh, and he is able to save his uh, family. And in many ways, that will uh, tell us how the family of Joseph gets to Egypt. And in chapter one, verses one through seven, you'll notice that it ties these two books together. Look at verse one. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. And then the, the tribes are named. And then verse 6 tells us, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So it tells us how. Uh, this nomadic people um, multiply in Egypt. It's almost like a womb for them to be able to survive the hardships of the desert. And what we find is uh, Joseph is elevated to help them uh, begin a new nation. But as was mentioned in the video, this is not a standalone story. It's tied back to the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Genesis. Now, what's interesting here is um, it tells us that as they make their way down into Egypt, um, they multiply. And as they are multiplying, um, this will cause some concern. But look at verse seven. This is fascinating here. They were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. This is not a standalone statement. It's language that comes out of Genesis chapter 1. And the term that is used here in the NIV, increased in numbers, some other translations uh, says that they were prolific in multiplying, is the same word that was used back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, where uh, God fills the waters with sea creatures. And the term that is used there is it's teeming or full of. And so here again is this idea, God is starting anew, this time with a family. And this family has already made its way to Egypt. And as they made their way to Egypt, um, they multiply. As they multiply, they are fulfilling uh, the command that God gave back in Genesis chapter one, be fruitful and multiply. So these two books are still connected in a variety of different ways. Okay, so next paragraph. Verse 8, then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So from Pharaoh's point of view, this teeming or multiplication of the Israelites is a threat because they are potentially going to join with Egypt's enemies. And if they do so, then Egypt will be vulnerable. So when we talk about echoes of Exodus, one of the things that you find all through the Old Testament right to our very day is the insecurity of nations who are fearful of other people, okay? Uh, it drives so much of 
the politics back then and today as well. So what is he going to do? Um, he's going to put them under his control by enslaving them, verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So up to this point, it's interesting. It seems as though the Israelites are flourishing as people that are a part of the Egyptian community. They have jobs. They're getting married. They're having kids. They're not slaves yet until this new Pharaoh comes to the throne. He, in his fear, decides to enslave them, but they continue to multiply. Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. So conditions get even worse. So the writer here is uh, talking about how these individuals are thriving, and yet there is one that is threatened by that. And what they're going to do is they're going to be the bricklayers for many of the building projects. Take a look at verse 14. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. It could be that the writer also has another episode in mind that drives home just how bad Pharaoh's goals are. Um, when Pharaoh says, come, let us deal with them, um, it, it reminds us of the Tower of Babel. It, and, and what we find is the builders, come, let us build a city. Come, let us enslave them. So it's always about self-protection and about being uh, secure and having a great name, that type of thing. So in both accounts, whether it's the Tower of Babel or here in Genesis 1, we find that one, one group is uh, against God. In the case of the builders of the Tower of Babel, uh, God will disperse them. In this case here, it will take more time for them uh, to be freed from this harshness of, of, the, of the Pharaoh. So the writer is beginning to set up something that's going to take place during the plagues. And that is, there is a battle going on between Pharaoh and Yahweh. Now, we don't know it's Yahweh yet, because it's not until chapter three that his name is revealed to Moses. But what we find at this point here is that we see that these um, individuals are gonna cry out to God because their labor is getting harsher and harsher by Pharaoh and uh, his empire. Now, at the end of chapter one, what's fascinating is who the deliverers are. So if you look at verse 15, it says, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, those helping to deliver Hebrew babies, uh, whose name were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So let's talk about this for a moment. 
in chapters one and two, you're going to find five women. Here we are introduced to two that are named, Shifra and Pua. And um, it's important to notice who's not named here. Pharaoh is not named. And this is an obvious subversion of the power of Pharaoh by the author. What we find is Pharaoh, who has a name, he has a royal name, but it's never mentioned. But these two midwives are named and they are uh, rewarded because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. In verse 21, it says they have families of their own. Now, God is going to reward the lying of these two women. Okay, so when you read this text, you have to ask questions. A lot of times when we read the Bible, we look at commandments that are given to govern the people, and yet God blesses the Rahabs and the Shifra and the Puas who intentionally choose to lie as a way of navigating injustice. Does that make sense? So I don't think this is a moral dilemma. What we find is the women representing these marginalized people are very courageous and they are very clever as well. Remember that Pharaoh has unchecked absolute power and you would think that these Hebrew women probably would have feared for their own lives and just protected themselves. That's kind of a normal human reaction at times. But they thought of the promises of God. They thought of what God was going to do. And they chose to deceive Pharaoh here. Um, what we're going to find is in the echoes of Exodus that often people that have, are under the thumb of ruthless evil will often have to be clever and crafty to secure justice, to outmaneuver the injustice of people. And here's an example of this. And we don't need to explain it away. Um, it is good not to lie. But there will be occasions where wisdom suggests that the way to navigate is to use your craftiness when things are unjust. Now, that will not sit well with some Christians, but you see it all through the Bible. And what you see is individuals that normally we would condemn for lying are blessed by God. And that's what this chapter is saying. These two women who intentionally deceive Pharaoh is blessed by God and is even given a family of their own. You have some thoughts on that? Fibbing, that's right. So, <laughs> what Esty said, I know you couldn't hear is but, um, my mom will often call those little white lies fibbing rather than lies. <laughs> it's just a way of, uh, I guess, kind of softening the, <laughs> the thing. But, um, you know, in this situation here, it seems as though um, they will not get out from under this situation without using the wisdom that they use. And you'll notice right here, it says that um, when, they, uh, when they are brought before Pharaoh, verse 19, one of the things they say is these he Hebrew women are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So none of these women had um, complications in their pregnancy. Every one of them had perfect deliveries. Every one of them was able to deliver, to deliver before the midwives arrived. No, it's the idea here that these women are interceding because they believe that Pharaoh is evil and unjust, and they are willing to do what they need to do to protect their people. Does that sit? How does that sit with you guys? No comment? 
<laughs> it is what it is. So you don't have to explain it away. It is what it is. These women chose to intervene on behalf of their people. And believe me, God honors a truthful tongue. But there will be times when you have to navigate around extreme injustice and evil for the sake of the better, the better goal, in this case, of saving these kids. Any thoughts? No, that's but why he will, in verse 22, he'll give another command. So as he said, do you think that Pharaoh believed uh, these women? I don't think he believed these women, no. Um, and that's why he will follow up with this uh, edict. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all, all his people. Every Hebrew born, every Hebrew boy rather, that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let the girl live. That's the same edict as earlier in the chapter. Only notice who he's going to pull into this, his own people. So now it, 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 it was first directed toward the Hebrew midwives in verse 15. Now it's directed to his people. This is an all out genocide now because he's using Egyptians uh, to, to kill uh, these Hebrew boys. Any thoughts? Because, uh, uh, so Mark, Mark asked, why did he want to kill the uh, boys? I think the most logical answer is the boys grow up to be warriors. Yeah. Yeah. So Mark just said um, that you would think he'd want these boys for the sake of labor, but this takes us back again earlier into the chapter. His greatest fear is that they would align themselves with Egyptians' enemies and become part of their army, basically. So that's, they're going to go fight for Egypt's enemies, right? Yeah. Now, another angle Esty just brought up is a contemporary example is in China, you're only allowed to have two kids. Uh, so that's a way of controlling the population. Um, so that could play in here, but I, I think the primary reason here is because of the fear of their potential power as soldiers for their enemies. Other thoughts? So this is a Jewish genocide. And you'll see in verse 22, uh, this time it is going to be throw them into the Nile River. Um, he commands the Egyptians because you can't trust those Hebrews. They're lying. Okay. And so now it, at the beginning of chapter two, Moses enters into the story. So let's take a look at the first four verses. It says, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. Ding, 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 ding. Levi. This is the tribe that will be the priestly class. Okay. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got... she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So um, there's this waterproof basket that is made and she's going to place him on the river and the sister is the lookout. Let's see what's going to happen. Um, and she's following that basket along 
uh, along the uh, banks of the river. And lo and behold, Pharaoh's daughter is at the river to bathe. Verse five, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. So Pharaoh's daughter through a Hebrew woman um, is going to keep this baby safe and will eventually adopt this baby right under her father's nose, <laughs> right under Pharaoh's nose. And what's interesting is the uh, Moses sister cleverly intervenes and suggests that the Hebrew women nurse this baby rather than her wanting this baby to be killed. So she's even in defiance against her father, uh, Pharaoh's daughter is. And the text suggests that Moses is the only one that survives this watery death. There's no other mention of any other Hebrew babies that uh, survive this genocide. Um, what's interesting is he's on the water. He's safe on the water. He's in a waterproof basket. And this will provide a context for why the Egyptians will drown in the Red Sea later in chapters 14 and 15. Remember in the giving of the law, there is a provision a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye, okay? So this is kind of a, a tit-for-tat uh, justice upon the Egyptians for what they did to the Egyptian uh, baby boys. So it's, it's fascinating that even here, there is reminiscence of the law, even though the law hasn't been given yet, there is this idea that because of this genocide, later the Egyptians will meet the same fate that these baby boys did, okay? These baby boys more than likely drowned. Not all of them were in waterproof baskets. Most of them drowned. If they did not drown, then probably some of them were killed if they were taken to shore by uh, Egyptians because that was the command of Pharaoh. Thoughts there? So now we are given kind of the big picture right at the outset here of Moses' birth and the type of world that the Hebrew people are facing. The author here is uh, talking about a genocide that is producing chaos, it's criminal. It's evil, um, and the readers are kind of left to ponder this child that is taken from the river and what's going to happen to him. Now, you're going to notice something here that's interesting. Um, it jumps then from verse 10 to verse 11. All of a sudden, Moses has grown up. We're not told anything about his childhood in the palace. So the reader is kind of left to use their imagination a little bit. What type of world that Moses is drawn into and what type of world he must survive and what type of in, uh, privileges he must have enjoyed because Pharaoh himself was 
intentionally looking the other way or was too stupid to understand that this was one of the Hebrews' children. Now, let's double back at chapter two uh, before we get to uh, Moses fleeing and look at a couple things. So look here. Chapter two begins with him being born from the tribe of Levi. Already we're beginning to see a setup of a special tribe that is going to be the intercessors uh, for the people. Moses is going to have special access to God. When we fast forward to chapter 19 on Sinai, he's the one that receives the law. He's called a fine child in verse 2, which is an interesting term. It's the word tov, which means good. He was a good child, not in the sense of behavior, but the idea of good that is found repeatedly in Genesis 1 is after God created day, the days, day two, day three, four, five, and six, every time at the end of the day, he said, it is good. It is good. So there's a connection again back to Genesis when the author is talking about Moses being good. Again, here's kind of a story of recreation that's starting through this people, and in particular, this baby who will become the leader and deliverer of the nation. So it's not a random description of Moses' looks, okay? It, this is very intentional. It's not like, okay, oh, so-and-so had a baby. What's the baby look like? Mom or dad? The baby have blonde hair, brown hair, black hair, blue eyes, brown eyes. That's not what this is about. This is setting us up for what Moses is going to do for the nation. Verse 3, another allusion to Genesis. He's placed in a basket. There's the Hebrew word you can see on the screen, teva. It's the same word for ark in the story of Noah in the book of Genesis. This is the only time that word is mentioned in the whole Old Testament here and Noah's Ark. It's a very specific word that's being chosen to connect the two. Moses himself had his own Ark that God delivered him through the chaotic waters of the Nile River. Moses is kept safe, just like Noah was kept safe. And the readers would understand this association by word choice. So God is going to save his people and Moses is a prelude to that. And through a replay or an echo of the flood, there's a connection between Moses and Noah. Now, how, how is that possible? Again, if these are written later rather than earlier, the editors are specifically choosing word choices to bring back reminiscence and echoes in other parts of, of, of the law or Torah. Does that make sense? Brilliant writing, really. Go ahead. Good point. So, um, so what Esti just said is when Pharaoh gave the order to kill these he Hebrew boys, how long was that edict? Um, it had to be a fairly lengthy period of time. It's not like all the boys that were born at this point in time are to be killed because six months later, 10 months later, more boys could be born that would be the same threat as the ones that are being killed. So maybe, just maybe, even though we're not told this by the author, it is a lengthy period of time. Now, when you think about Jesus, Jesus has to survive a genocide. Remember, Herod uh, wants to kill all the baby boys. Where does he flee to Egypt with Mary and Joseph? 
And then after Herod dies, they come back. That's a period of time. That could very well be that this edict was in place as long as this pharaoh was alive. When he died, that edict might have been lifted. That makes sense. There. Questions or comments? Yeah, there's a good parallel between the situation with Jesus and Moses here. So. Um, Kay started out for us um, at the beginning of our study tonight about Moses' name. So let's talk about that for a second. She gave him the name Moses. So um, this word uh, from which the name Moses, Moshe, uh, is related to the Hebrew word Masha which means to draw out. Now, this raises a pretty interesting historical question. Is this a name that is given to Moses later by the Hebrew people? And here's why I'm, I'm asking this. When you think about it, if Pharaoh's daughter gave her endangered child a name, that says to draw out of the water, she is basically pretty much putting his life in jeopardy just by the name that she gives to him. So scholars have often thought that this is a Hebrew name that is reflected in the text later. Probably Pharaoh's daughter gave Moses an Egyptian name. That's the way she could continue to hide Moses from her father. If she was to name him, I drew him out of the water. It's like laying a, a, your hand down in poker saying, okay, he can read all the cards. He knows this is a Hebrew baby. Yeah, well, that could be a later editor that is putting the name in her mouth, okay? Because Again, there's this association between Moses and Noah. Noah is drawn out of the water through the ark and is saved. And he becomes a uh, the, the beginning of a new world and a new people. And that's what Moses is too. So I don't know if you heard what uh, Esty said, but she said, but Pharaoh's daughter gave him the name uh, uh, Moses, I drew him out of the water. Um, the editor might be putting that name in Pharaoh's daughter's mouth because he's intentionally drawing parallels to Noah. Okay. Again, you, when you begin to notice some of these things in the text, you ask the question, why? Why would she name him, if she really didn't name him Moses, why on earth would she do that? Because she's going to endanger that child just by the name that she gives him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you notice at the bottom of the slide, biblical scholars typically refer to this sort of name giving as folk etymology. In other words, Hebrews 2.10 is not a literal account of the origin of Moses' name, but became symbolic later, and Moses put the name, I mean, uh, the editors put the name of Moses into the mouth of Pharaoh as a way for it to be significant to their story and to their origin. I know we don't like we would rather the Bible be straightforward history, but you might, might as well learn this now. There is no such thing as straightforward history. I don't care what history you're talking about. It's always written from a point of view. So whoever wrote the American history that you learn in school wrote it from a point of view. And as they wrote it from a point of view, what are they trying to accomplish by that? If you read, Native Americans um, 
story of the origins of the country, it would be completely different. Okay, so that's just the way history goes. And it's also important to keep that in mind whenever you hear something being presented as history, that, that there always is a point of view. That's true with the news. That's why you can take the same event and turn on Fox News or CNN and MSNBC, and they will all have their own take on how they're presenting that same event. Okay. That makes sense to everybody? Makes us uneasy because we'd like for people to be straightforward with us. But it, it doesn't happen. Well, he had a point of view too. Yeah. You you know, when people say, I just I just read the Bible. I just believe the Bible. Well, I that's great. But just remember that when you open to read the Bible, you are already interpreting it by your reading. You can't get away from that. So in order to understand it, you're already engaging with it through some type of interpretation, whether it's something you've heard before or um, things that have shaped the way you look at a particular story. It's nothing to get upset about. It's just when people say the Bible says, that's not the best way to verbalize it because the Bible doesn't say anything without interpretation. Okay. So you read it and you interpret it as you, as you engage it. Thoughts? Now, what's interesting here is I'm going to minimize this just for a second so those here can see the full slide. The account of Moses is paralleled to a story of King Sargon of Akkad, which was uh, a ruler around 2300 BCE. So he precedes uh, Moses. Um, by a length of time he now notice some of the details you can look this up uh, you can google uh sargon of akkad um and it will tell the story of him being born in secret placed in a reed basket closed with a lid waterproofed with pitch carried down a river rescued by someone drawing him out of the water and raised as an adopted son the parallel is unbelievable. King Sargon of Akkad, who, whose legend was destined to rule, established, they believe, the world's first empire about 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. His name means true king, and Sargon of Akkad took advantage of his presumed legitimacy to establish this empire, and guess where this empire was? Close to the Tigris and Euphrates River, Babylon, the area of Babylon. What may be happening here is that the writer of Exodus is telling the Moses story in such a way to draw the parallel to show that God's empire or kingdom that will be unveiled through Moses is of one who is as great as King Sargon. Now, this doesn't mean Moses' story is made up at all, but what it does mean is it's kind of a typical template of a rags to riches type of story where an individual has risen from a place of poverty to a place of greatness. So we already saw that in the Joseph story in Genesis, okay? From a place of entrapment, Joseph was enslaved and he rose to a position of prominence. So it's a theme or a motif as we talked about last week that we're gonna see over and over in the Old Testament. And the writers will give to us these templates 
as a way of saying that Moses is the verified deliverer of the nation of Israel, and they too have a legitimacy to become a great people. Okay. So um, you can look this up. Just look up King Sargon of Akkad. You'll find some interesting parallels there. So there's kernels of truth in the Moses story, but it's interesting the way it's written. It's almost as if it's a, it's a pushback against an empire that will later take them into exile, the nation of Babylon. Okay. Any thoughts there? Okay, we're almost done for tonight. So come down to the last part of chapter two. And all I'm going to say about this is it's a preview of coming attractions. Okay. Um, it says here, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who, who made you ruler and judge over us? Well, the answer to that is God. Okay. But in their mind, who, you know, why are you ruling over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known and when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, and Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Rescue, deliverer, water. These themes just keep popping up. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. Isn't that fascinating? Not a Hebrew, an Egyptian. He drew water for us and watered the flock. Where is he? Ruel asked his daughters, why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. So Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershon, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And during that long period, the king of Egypt died. There you go, Esty. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So no sooner does Moses become an adult, he engages in conflict. And what we find is he each time is trying to deliver his people from a situation, first from an Egyptian, then two Hebrews fighting each other, and then these uh, daughters that uh, he comes across. So Moses is trying to break up these fights, and he is questioned, who are you to be ruler over us? And this is going to become a motif through the rest of Exodus in through Numbers as well. His leadership is constantly being questioned. So Pharaoh's going to try to kill him, and what we find is he marries into a Midianite family. Now, this gives to me verification of God's hand in the writing of the scriptures. You know why? The Midianites are the Israelites' enemies in the Old Testament. He marries into a Midianite family, but the author doesn't cover that over. He's It's straightforward with it, saying that he married Zipporah. Later, Zipporah will have an issue with Moses as well. <laughs> and poor Moses, man, you know, he might not have been a prophet, but he was a weeping deliverer, that's for sure. 
So Pharaoh is going to try to kill him. He runs away and he ends up in the land where this group of people will be the Israelites' enemies. And they already were Israel's enemies back in Genesis. Here's the allusion to Genesis again. Look at the bottom of the slide. When Israel uh, moved, uh, uh, Jacob and his family moved to Egypt, um, the way Joseph gets to Egypt is he was sold into Egyptian slavery by Midianites that bought him from his brothers. All kinds of connections are being made with Genesis here. So at the end of chapter two, a cry goes out, and that's the setup now for uh, Moses becoming the deliverer that will lead them out of Egypt. So um, what we find in this story is uh, God hates the fact that they have been enslaved and that they are being abused. Um now, what's interesting is in the giving of the law later, there's regulations about slaves that the Israelites will own, which is kind of interesting. Is God not concerned about those slaves? But he is concerned about the Israelites being enslaved. So let's hold that intention for a little while, um, because the book keeps going back to the Abrahamic covenant. God made this promise to Abraham, Isaac, and jo uh, Jacob, and that's why God's concern is about their plight. God's being stirred to action at this point. Some thoughts? Anybody have any thoughts you want to mention? If not, um, you see, there's so much here. That's what I'm trying to say. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's not just a simple story. It's a theological treatise that is drawing off of Genesis and prepping for the rest of what's come in the, in the law. Well, we'll close shop then at this point and, um, Glad to have you online and uh, look forward to having our next study next Wednesday, okay? Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Have a good night, everybody. Okay, you too. Thank you.